sharing our faith and passion for the Lord Jesus Christ with others is a desire of Zion Christian Fellowship. Our prayer is that this message will have a lasting impact on your life and draw you closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This message is not copyrighted. You are free to make copies for friends and neighbors. We only ask that you copy it in its entirety without alterations or changes. Now unto the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Yes, good evening. I, I too want to thank you for coming out. We, uh, our brother Mark was, couldn't hardly make it out, canceled flights, and here we are kind of cramming some meetings in real quick, and I just appreciate the good turnout tonight. Not everybody, uh, that's often a good sign when people come for special meetings. That's a good sign that uh, all is not lost. So, uh, yeah, I think about the way I was introduced here that I have some thoughts on brotherhood unity. And I just want to say right up front that, you know, it's, we've had a, a streak, a pretty, a really long streak at Gospel Light of some unity. But I'm always, I don't know, maybe all elders go through this. I, I don't always rest easy in my bed at night. I'm always afraid we'll be the next ones to struggle with disunity. And, uh, and of course, in my own mind, I, my grandfather was an elder, and he always said, well, when there's church trouble, it's the elder's fault. And, of course, he could say that since he was an elder, and, and I think about that a lot. So uh, I'd like to start out with prayer. Lord God, we come to you. So thankful for your great salvation, the Lord of the church, the Savior of the church, the one who will come back for the church. We, we give you the glory, the praise, and the honor you deserve all. And tonight we want to dedicate this meeting to you, knowing that if it's just words, that they will go nowhere. But if your Holy Spirit is here speaking and, and wooing and, and taking words and, and putting them in in hearts, taking words away and making them forgotten, the words that are not from you, I pray, God, that you would be in our midst tonight. So bless our ears, bless me to speak, and oh God, be in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Back in about 2004, I was, I was struggling, we had had a I went through a church split, kind of a big part of my story in my life, and I was wrestling with direction. Through that wrestling, I often tell my brothers, and they let me get by with it, I say I got my second conversion. And I found out who Jesus is. I had spent a lot of time reading the Word. I went through, and I went through the, the four Gospels over and over again to try to know if I could just figure out who Jesus is, if I could just figure out what he came to do, then I would understand what the church is, and I would know my direction. That was my, my logic. And I began in that, at that time to discover the real Jesus, or I think so. I, I began, you know, I've heard somebody say, well, I fell in love with Jesus. That was the only words that I could really come to to describe. That's a terrible description. We know when we say somebody fell in love with something, that's it's usually kind of an ugly thing, but that's where I came to. He became my hero, and I just wanted to follow him and be his disciple. And somehow through all that process, I, I was already 
born again. I was already baptized. I, I don't think it was a false conversion before, but I came to a new and greater understanding of the Lord. Now, there was something about that experience that when I came through it, I'm a somewhat of a self-aware, self, you know, I, I often do, kind of, I think about thinking, and I realized that I've seen other people go through this experience. All of a sudden, they see Jesus in a whole new way. The Holy Spirit comes down. They, 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 the Bible comes alive in a brand new way. And pretty soon, they've left the church. Out they go. And the next thing you know, they have this wonderful testimony. But the end of that testimony is a life that is completely without church and without order and without structure. And I knew that. And so I said, you know, I'm going through that experience right now. And, and believe me, I did. I began to wonder, why bother with church? What's the church got to do with this thing? I've got Jesus. Church is a big pain. It's, it's a lot. In fact, you know, you know I, thought, I think one time I said something like this, and I was rebuked for it. I said, you know, heaven must be a compensation for all the troubled church causes. And that's the way I felt at that time. That's where I was at. And, you know... But somewhere in the back of my mind was, I, of course, I was growing up in a setting where church was strongly, strongly taught. I think Mark and might be able to, to corroborate that. That was very strong. So I knew that somewhere in all the grand scheme of Jesus, the church matters. And so I decided, well, I'm just going to plug away and plug away. And I am so glad that I did. The church is integrally bound up in God's salvation of mankind. It is our disciples where we're discipled. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So tonight, the message that I've been tasked to give is intended to be a, a foundation, a lay a foundation for brothers' meeting tomorrow. I'll just be honest with you. This felt like it was good to talk about the, the foundation for brotherhood, foundation for togetherness and unity you know what is church about what is brotherhood about what is brothers meetings about and if we don't know that we're just going to sit and we'll talk and we'll talk and we'll talk and we'll get nowhere so tonight we'd just like to talk about that in in 2014 we had a church split it was you know we were two churches meeting in one building Maybe three churches, I'm not sure. Maybe two and a half churches meeting in one building. You know how that goes. And there was a lot of words flying around. I was a naive brother at that time. I thought, surely, 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 there was a way to bring these two ways of thinking into one spot. I was wrong. I, I regretted that for a long time. That wasn't possible. But as I listened to the rhetoric floating around, I realized that there was... Some of the brothers were in the process of leaving for the wrong reason. There was this rhetoric that the church that I ended up with, with the three elders that were or the three ministers that end up continuing on with Gospel Light Christian Fellowship and, and the church that is now Gospel Light Christian Fellowship. We were being accused of, you know, number one, we were going to go back to the Amish. Uh, we were going to focus entirely on externals and, and the Spirit of God would, would be gone because all we were going to do was focus on externals and rules and standards and we'd become like the dead Mennonites and the dead Amish and nobody wants to, to do that. Everybody wants the Spirit of God to be with us and, 
And the Spirit of God is going to go, so we're going to go with the Spirit of God and we're going to leave this dead behind. That was the, that was the thought. So, one of my great griefs during that time was that somehow there wasn't a vision being lifted up for what I'll call the conservative side. A vision of, of goodness and light and truth and brotherhood and, and walking in, a, in, in harmony with God's will together as a brotherhood. That, that vision somehow was not getting across. So my hope tonight is to, is to somehow paint a picture of what brotherhood can be. And, you know, that somehow we can see the beauty of it and walk in it. You know, there might be some who just don't want brotherhood. You know, I was there in 2004. I was there in that place. What's church got to do with it? Is it worth all the bother? All the, all the brothers' meetings and the tensions and, the, and all that goes with that. Is it worth the bother? So there might be some who say, no, it's not worth the bother. I would hope maybe tonight I can hopefully show a picture. Maybe you would decide it is worth the bother. But if not, at least... If you decide that it's not for you, brotherhood is not for you, at least you've made a clear decision based on facts and not just sound bites and accusations. So that's the purpose of the, of the talk tonight. I would like you to go to Ephesians. I should have had you go there first. Ephesians chapter 4. You probably knew I was going to go to this chapter. Ephesians chapter 4. And for the sake of time, I've been wrestling. I would like to read all uh, from the 1 through 16, the first 16 verses of this chapter. But I would like to assume that I'm in a Bible reading congregation. You know what's in this chapter, I hope. So maybe I can, is it possible, can I kind of skip through and everybody will kind of get the message or do we need to read the whole thing? How do you feel about it? What do you say in there? Just skip through. Okay, we'll do that. Well, the first verse says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. This is Ephesians chapter 4. That you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. So walk worthy of, to to walk in line with, lined up with and up to the standard that God has called you to. And with all loneliness, meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And then the third verse and the thirteenth verse I'm going to emphasize. Endeavoring. To keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We'll jump here to the 13th verse. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's two places that speak about unity. And unity here is, is part of measuring up to the fullness of Christ in this particular context. Now I'd like to, to notice the rest of this just very quickly. In the fourth verse, uh, we'll talk about endeavoring a little bit later on and keeping. There is one body, one spirit, so there's a bunch of oneness here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then, and then he speaks about it. And to every one of us is given grace. Is given grace. That is in the seventh verse. According to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now that is speaking about, well let's just go down. Wherefore he says, when he sent it up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. The The message there is that Jesus Christ, when he died and went to heaven and returned and went back to heaven, however you want to put that, in that process, 
He brought back gifts. Of course, the, the simile, the metaphor there is of a conquering king bringing gifts back to his people. And the gifts that he gave back to his people are, what does it say? He gave some apostles, 11th verse, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. The perfecting of the saints, that's what they're for, the perfecting of the saints for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and a perfect man. So what are the gifts in the body for? They are for the edification of the body. And I want to just challenge something here, something I think we all struggle with in our settings, in the charity remnant settings, is what happened to all the revivals and the, the Spirit of God that moved and, the, and all the wonderful things that happened 15 or 20 years ago. We're replacing it with dead religion. That's the cry. I would like to challenge us that this chapter, if you follow this, is saying that that is exactly what the Spirit of God is doing when He brings a church together, when He gives it leadership, when He gives it the gifts of the body. It's not like, oh, now we have to take second best. We had revival. Now we have to take church. No, what God is saying here through the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians is that no, the Holy Spirit is given to the church. And yes, it's a harder job. It's a slog. You know, it's not the highs. It, you know, we hopefully have a few highs. But it's not the same thing as, you know, getting saved and people coming to the mourner's bench and, and weeping and tears here around the altar. That is a beautiful thing to experience. But that only in history. You'll see that it never lasts. Why? Because it's just served its purpose. Now the hard job of the church of just working out Brotherhood, and in this chapter, unity. Coming together is integrally bound up in unity. Now, you'll notice here that these gifts are, are given, 13th verse, for unity. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. So the gifts are given to the body. The gifts of the Holy Spirit gifts, by the way, not some, you know, this is from God, is given to the church for what? For to, to establish unity. One of the things that, that you'll notice here, we'll go back to the, to the second verse, is it? Uh, third verse, endeavoring. Endeavoring is hard. It is work. Endeavoring is something if we have to endeavor and to keep. To keep is to guard. It's to, it's to keep something that could be lost. It, when Mary kept it in her heart, it was, it was guarded there, protected there, not forgotten there. Endeavoring is a hard word. You look that up, it's to... I think I wrote it down here. To hasten, make haste, to exert oneself, give diligent. It's something to be worked at. So endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is something we have to do. Now, eventually, I'm going to show you, I'm just going to give you a heads up, I'm going to point out that brothers' meetings is integrally bound up in the endeavoring process. That is one of the ways, it is a tool that God has given to us to endeavor to keep the unity. Is this something we do inside of our heads? We just try real hard to be unified. It is something we have to actually take steps, practical steps to work at so that we can be unified. So that's what brothers' meetings are about. So remember, this is a, not a, a teaching. This is not a, a revival message I'm giving here right now. This is, this is to, to prepare our hearts for a brothers' meeting and maybe some future brothers' meetings. So... 
It's for, for the edification of the body of Christ, and it is for unity. I would like to just point out that in John 17, you can go there, you're very familiar with this verse. John 17, 21 through 23, it is Jesus is praying in the last, or one of the biggest prayers we have of Jesus' prayers, and he is praying specifically for oneness. He is praying there in 21 that they may all be one as thou, Father, and he gives the reason that they may believe that thou hast sent me. It was deeply integral to the ministry of Jesus Christ that we would be one. And I would like to talk about the last verse, so that they will believe that thou hast sent me and that you have loved me. So unity is something that is very visible. I will remind you of that here in a little bit. Unity is not ethereal. In fact, I wrote down four things that I think some people have wrong about unity. You might recognize this in some churches or maybe in some individuals or maybe in your own heart. Number one, the invisible church is one, but the visible church made up of human beings will always fall short of disunity, fall short of unity. In other words, we have just simply accepted disunity as normal, as normal. John D. Martin came to our congregation a few, see, I guess it's been over a month ago now, and he made an interesting point that I think is worth thinking about. He asked us to ask ourselves, when the Bible holds up diversity and unity, which is held up as the standard? Is it unity or is it diversity? I believe a lot of our congregations down through the last 20 years have held up diversity rather than unity. We've held up the idea that we can all somehow do our own thing, believe what we want to believe, and somehow we'll be one big happy family. And that, John D. Martin said, is just simply not what the Bible teaches. The idea that, oh, you know, we just have all this diversity and somehow we get along. Well, that works for about three years, and that's all over. John D. says it this way. He points out that, that uh, a lot of churches out there, and of course he's in Pennsylvania where you see a lot of churches all around you. Maybe here in Colonia you have a little bit of that too. But, you know, they, they have a Mennonite church on every corner there, so they get a chance to see how it works. There. And he said, well, a lot of churches have decided that, you know, we'll just have more diversity because if we have more diversity, this is John D. speaking, I really appreciate what he said. He said, we have more diversity, then we'll have a wider and bigger, a bigger tent, and more people can come, and we'll have a bigger church, and the church will grow, and people won't feel left out, and, and you know, just more people fit in to our, our very diverse church. He says, in about 30 years, all those birds come home to roost. Because, for one thing, they usually have shrunk. They have a few seeker families, but no more than the church they left that was more conservative. And he points out that actually the reality is the churches that continue to stand for what they've always stood for, grow at the same rate of speed that those who think that opening up the doors wider will somehow make them grow. That's his observation in Pennsylvania. So the second thing is that local unity is all that's required. We need not consider other churches. That would be another false, false teaching. In fact, furthermore... It's easier to have unity if we stay small, so we're going to discourage church growth. There are some that are there. In fact, I think we had a little of that in our congregation for a while. The third false, false idea of unity is that it's ethereal, intangible, invisible, a matter of the heart, a spiritual bond that need not be expressed in any kind of organizational union. 
I would challenge you, go to, go to John, 7, or John 17, and I would like us to ask ourselves, how is the world going to realize that Jesus came from God by seeing the church's unity if the unity of the church is invisible? Is that a question you ask yourself? Think about that. If the invis- unity is invisible, just something kind of inside of our heads, then how is the church going to see that and realize that that's unified is evidence that Jesus came from the Father. How is that going to work? You following that? Number four, external unity in some sensitive areas is all that's required. In other words, we're just going to figure out what we have to be unified on, then we'll just let everything else go. That would be one of the things that we could decide. That would be point number four. I would like you to, to get the scriptural understanding of unity. And I'm just going to go back through this. I've already kind of covered a little bit of this, but I'd just like to see a scriptural understanding of unity. I'm just going to read it. A scriptural understanding of unity is a unity of the spirit and unity of faith are intended result of the gifts in the body. The Apostle Paul uses the word endeavoring to hasten, make haste, to exert oneself, give diligence, indicating that it's something to be worked at. It is given, the, the gifts in the body are given for edification and unity of faith. It's the primary purpose which the gifts are given to the body. It's the unity of the faith that keeps us from being tossed about. And that's in the 13th verse. If you still have your Bible open to that part. Um, no, I'm sorry. 14th verse. Note that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness by, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. So unity, the gifts in the body are given for unity so that we won't be just tossed about. And you go into a church that's highly disunity, has a lot of disunity in it, and there is a lot of lambs have lost their way. And a lot of strange doctrines get bounced around. Spirit gifted leaders in the church are given their gifts especially so that they'll be able to take practical steps to promote unity of the spirit and faith in the body. That is a biblical understanding of unity. So, I would like to give a little, a little disclaimer. I must admit, the sermon is going to be a little on the long side. I hope you can bear with that. I tried to shorten it. And I know sometimes it gets too long and, I, and you lose it. So I'm just going to ask for a little forbearance early on. If you get to, kind of gets to be about 40 minutes, you think it's about done, you stop listening. So it's not going to be a 40-minute sermon. Okay, I would like to say this about this message. I would like to assume that you know that unity is a good thing. But you have some fears, possibly. What's that look like? You know, what's, you know, if I have to submit to my dad, what does that mean? If I have to be unified with that brother over there, what does that mean? What's that look like? I will assume that you want unity and are looking for a path to get there. I will also assume that the candlestick church of sincere, born-again believers, not rebels against authority. I'd like to assume that. I'd also like to assume that you all value the local body of Christ and value its unique voice and testimony for Him locally. In other words, there is a universal church. We all believe that, right? We all believe in the, in the church that's in Haiti, in the church that's in, in Russia, the church that was a thousand years ago, the church that was you know, the early church in Jerusalem, 
They're the universal body of Christ. But we, I'm, I, I'm just going to assume that you believe you've been placed here in Colonia area for a purpose, for a specific and unique testimony to your neighborhood. And that you value that. I'd like to assume that. When it comes to unity, I think a lot of us, not me so much, but I know this movement got established from people coming out of dead religion, dead, dark places. You know, I remember when you know, Johnny and Andy Miller came from, they come from up uh, farther, farther east of us, and they described the church they came from, this Amish church. And it was dark. The preachers didn't know the Bible. I mean, literally just didn't know the Bible at all. It didn't, didn't use the Bible even in their preaching. Uh, they read their prayers and a lot of hypocrisy and, you know, immorality and nasty stuff was happening in their congregation. It wasn't just like, you know, they had a few false doctrines they wanted to get away from. It was a dark place. And so a lot of people, when they came into our settings, they associated order and structure and unity and brotherhood with darkness. And they put those two in the same place. They wanted nothing to do with it. And so I think we struggle with that in our settings. It's very real. I am very thankful. My, my particular background is there was a lot of order, a lot of unity, a lot of identity. And there was also a lot of very real, sincere Christians there. A very godly, solid, born-again people who loved the Lord Jesus and walked in His ways. I didn't have, I just, I just have to say, I didn't have the reactions that some people do. And that's, that's just kind of where I'm at. Uh, I went through a little bit of reaction during that 2004 time, but it was kind of based on some different things. I was listening to a message by Mark Miller, and it would have been when he was working with the, uh, I guess it was Shining Light, I'm not sure. I listened to the message, I'm not sure of the context. And he talks about this, this brother in their setting, and they were talking about contemporary music, and this brother came to Mark, and, and he sat down in his living room, and he wanted the church. He wanted what they had there at, at uh, Faith or Shining Light, I forget which. And, but he said, I, I really like contemporary music, and I'm not willing to give it up. And his tears were flowing down his cheeks as he said this. As Mark told this publicly, he said, you know, he wanted his contemporary music more than he wanted brotherhood, and he left. And the sad part of that story is it's been a number of years ago now, eight or ten now. He said that whole situation, you know, he got out of the brotherhood, he got his contemporary music, but his life is going downhill. So brotherhood has, has a, a place for not being tossed to and fro. Do we value, do we value brotherhood more than we value whatever that thing is in our life, whatever the contemporary music is in your life? more than you brought value brotherhood. It's a question that has to be asked. You know, in our, in, in our setting, you know, we have, you know, we have a, a fairly conservative congregation, but I have found that there is people who believe in a lot of conservative values who still don't believe in brotherhood. That's something I have discovered. You know, they still, their baseline is, I have to decide for myself. That is still the baseline. So conservatism is not always brotherhood. Sometimes it's just, just a strong will to do right and live a disciplined life for the kingdom of God. Uh, sometimes the platform is still my opinion takes 
precedence. I was, uh, I believe I was in, at, at uh, Men's Discipleship in 2004. I think that was about that time frame. And I was, I was wrestling. I was still in the German Baptist at that time. And, and I had had a visit with Dale Gish. And I somehow ended up at the, uh, at the Men's Discipleship. And I met a man that I had known for a long time, Jonathan Yancey. He's from up in, up in uh, Ontario, I believe. And he was an elder up there. And we were visiting. And I said, Jonathan, I, 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 I love what I see here. I love the preaching. You know, this was back in the Denny and Moe's days, you know. And I just love everything about it. But what's going to keep you from just going out into the world? And Jonathan, just a dear brother, he said, well, he said, we still believe in brotherhood and church. And that'll keep us from slipping over the edge. And I, and I still agree with him. I'm not sure that we do. I don't know that he was right. I think he was right about the solution to slipping out into the world. But I don't know that we've done a real good job of holding on to brotherhood and the kingdom of God in that way. So I would like us to, to look at discipleship. I pointed out that the, I, I made it clear there in John that the unity of the church is the, a visible unity. I want to make that clear. A visible unity of the church is one of the ways that, that the world can see and believe that Jesus was sent of the Father. Did you get that? John 17. I would like us to understand now within that the church is the discipler. I might be repeating something, or at least I touched on this a little bit at, uh, the last time I was here, maybe three weeks ago. But I want to make this point because... The unity of the church is the discipler. You know, we asked the question, how do you disciple? In fact, it came up, we had church camp just this past uh, weekend, and some of the brothers were sitting around the corner, and they asked me, well, how, what is, how does discipleship work? And so I was kind of primed, and I gave my little spiel right there, uh, just sitting in a circle with brothers there at, at church camp. So in 1 uh, Timothy 3.15, but if I tarry long, Paul tells Timothy, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of God, the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So the church is a pillar, which means it's a proclaimer. A pillar was where they, where they put the, the, you know, if the emperor or the governor had something to say, he would put a plaque on the center pillar in the marketplace. And that was a, it was a proclaimer, a place of proclamation. So the church is the proclaimer of truth. But it's also the ground. It's the place where the pillar sets. It's a, it is a source of truth. Now that's, I, want, I, I hope that doesn't shock you. But the church is the place where God's truth is lived out and in practical, tangible ways so that the world can see, ah, that's what it looks like to be a Christian. You say, this is the gospel, this is the Christian life, and now we see it. Not just in you, but in y'all. The church, the kingdom of God. This, that's an important point. If you've listened to John D. messages very often, you get this. That the, the, the church is the place where people can see what could have been if the world had not fallen. You know, we know what politics looks like in America and all the rest of the world. We know the wars and the fightings. Within the church, it's not supposed to be that way. The, world, the church is supposed to be evidence that God's Spirit is here, not just in my heart, not just in Larry's heart, but in the collective body. So the church is the discipler. My own testimony as a, 
one of the things you know about German Baptist youth is that they're kind of allowed to go and do whatever they want to do. Well, I had my rock music, and I, I don't know if everybody gets addicted to rock music, but I got addicted to rock music. It was just something that was just integrally bound up in my worldview and what I, I just loved it. And, but God's Spirit got a hold of me, and I was baptized, joined the church, and I gave up a whole lot of things, including rock music, but there was withdrawals. It hurt. I don't, I don't know how to even describe just that sense of loss, like a big chunk had been taken out of me. And I wasn't about to go back. But I wonder to this day, if the church had not just took an absolute stand, thou shalt not have a radio, thou shalt not have a tape player, thou shalt not have music in your life, I don't know that I would have been had the strength. And Well, I, I don't know what God would have done. But God used the church as a discipler in my life. And I was able to cut myself away from that and purge that out of my life. Largely due to the fact the church said, no. The church was my discipler in that area. We all know that birds of a feather flock together, don't we? We see a a rebellious youth. We've all seen it. Us older ones have all seen it. If there's a rebellious youth that has a struggle with his dad and like, you know, is, is not going in a good direction, you take him to another congregation to visit for the weekend, and seven minutes after he gets there, he finds the rebel youth in that congregation. That happened? You've seen that? I've seen it a lot of times. But what if, what if you took that youth to a congregation and there wasn't any rebels? Where would he, where would he go then? Unity is strength. Unity is strength. And that's what happens in our, in our congregations. If you take a, a young person who, you know, he likes his platform shoes and his poofy hair and I don't know, whatever, you know, he likes his contemporary music and whatever. And there's a brother or two or a family or two in our congregation that maybe isn't quite as far as that young man wants to go or that young lady wants to go. But, you know, you know it's, it's not, as, not any worse than brother, brother Jim does or, you know, brother... And, you know, Sister Sally, her, her dress is a little bit like what I'm trying to do. The, a, a rebellious person who needs discipleship will use those, those disunities, those areas of disunity, for excuses to keep going and going and going. Unity is strength for discipleship. It matters. It's important. Those who, of, of us who have youth can relate to these things. That applies to, to churches. Years ago, I was with a man that was a sincere Christian. He, uh, he came out of the, uh, the world, we called it. Uh, worked, at, worked in Lafayette, Indiana as an inspector there and, a, and found the Lord, found the, found the plain people. And he said, he said, you know, he was a Bible reader. He said, I found five times I saw the place that says, greet one another with a holy kiss, and I just breezed right over it until I met the plain people that were greeting one another with a kiss, and it's like, boom! He saw it in the Bible for the first time and saw that it might actually apply to him. So if a church, a church is part of God's witness to the world of how to live, you know, but if the church is not unified, you know, we had to come to unity in our congregation. We had to decide, are we going to do the holy kiss? There was some, there was some, you know, uneasiness and struggles there but you know we we had to admit it was in the bible so then okay 
is something to do with two people. It's not a one-person thing, you know. It's the kiss is two people at least. And so we got to figure out how we're going to go about this thing. And so we spent a brother's meeting talking about how we're going to do, or first of all, whether we're going to, and then how we're going to go about it. Unity is one of the ways we show the world that the Spirit of God is working within us. Unity, the church is a discipler. That's the point of this section of my message. I grew up in a, in a setting where the Church of the Brethren was our, was our bugaboo. You know, that was the people that went all wrong, and they are the example of what we don't want to be. The church of the Brethren, you know, they had, you know, by, by now they've got, you know, gays in the pulpit, they've got divorce and remarriage, they've got transgenders in the pulpit. It's a mess. It's a mess of a church. It's a mess. And I grew up with, you know, we don't want to be like the Church of the Brethren. Uh, one of the things that is true of the Church of the Brethren is that in, in the First World War, they decided they were not going to absolutely require people to be, to be conscious objectors fully. They allowed them to go and be non-combatants in the, in the military. Well, that opened up a door. And then by the time the Second World War came in, they had people that were, were, went in as combatants. By the Vietnam War, there was only about 20% or so that can still consider themselves non-resistant. Now, what a point I want to make here is this. They decided not to take a stand. They decided not to be unified. They decided not to give a teaching. They decided not to say this is what it looks like to be a Christian. They decided just to skip that step. And then everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And I think there's still a substantial number. They would consider themselves a peace church. I think there's probably still a percentage of them that would not go to war to this day. But it started when they decided not to take a stand, not to decide. Decided not to decide. Does that make sense? You know, it's... Just leave it up to everybody to decide on your own. In our, in our congregation, we have people that, that saw the head covering in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 11, even believed, by the way, every commentary I have on my shelf, and I have a lot of commentaries on my shelf. I know some people don't believe in commentaries, but I do. I've got a lot of commentaries on my shelf, but every single commentary that I have says the head covering is a head covering, just like we believe it. You go back to Matthew Henry, Adam Clark, go all the way up through to, to some of the Presbyterian commentaries that I have on my shelf, and all of them agree that 1 Corinthians 11 says what it says, and people know that. But it, we have people in our congregation that would say until they met the Mennonites, they just simply didn't believe it. The church, a unified church, had made a stand. Now they saw it. Now they believe what the Scripture says because, obviously, there's people that are doing it. So church is a discipler. Modesty. You know, we have uh, sisters in our congregation that would say, you know, they, they thought they were dressing modestly until they met a church full of people that were truly dressing modestly. The church is a discipler. I'd also like to speak about entering the kingdom. I could spend some time on that subject. There's, I actually have more to talk about. I probably better just skip that. The last sermon I mentioned when I was here, I talked about being followers of the churches of God. Followers of the Apostle Paul. Followers of people. So the Thessalonians were called, that's in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2, I believe it is. The Thessalonians were called to look to other churches for their example. So churches are disciples. I would like to speak about the, the, the early church compared to our time. In the early church, by and large, most people were disenfranchised. Disenfranchised means they were cut out 
from the power structure. They were cut out from, from, the, from be, having any influence in the world. Most people, a lot, big chunk of them were slaves in the Roman Empire, as far as that goes. But there was just a disenfranchisement. There was a few people that had power, a few people that had influence, a few people that had wealth. Everybody else was kind of on their own. And when the gospel of the kingdom was preached, as I study, you, everybody has wondered, why did the church grow so fast? Well, of course, the Holy Spirit, we can talk about a lot of things. But one of the things I think, I believe, caused the church to grow so fast was the kingdom of God. The people were said, hey, you can't be a part of the Romans. You can't be a part of the, of the Sadducees. You can't be a part of the rich people and the powerful people. But we have the kingdom of God. You can be a part of that. You know, it's got a King Jesus. It's got, it's got belonging, togetherness, and it's got safety because you've got people that care about you and will visit you in prison and, and they will, will keep you from starving and take care of your sick. It is a, you can be a part of it. And so, now we have a different world. We have a world that America, the United States of America, I don't know if it's fading or not, but right now, I think it's probably still true, the United States of America and Western culture is the most pervasive and permeating culture that's ever existed since the Greek culture back, back in Jesus' day. It is a culture that allows everybody in. It wants everybody to come in. You know, back in the 50s, it was Elvis. In the 60s, it was the Beatles. And, and by the time the 70s came out, it was the, what, Jimi Hendrix and the big hair people. And by my age group, it was, it was a, a little different crowd, but it was, there was a lot of you know, you can go look at a picture and say, well, that must have been 70s. Well, that must have been 80s. Now it's not that. What is it today? Individual. Be your own man. Do your own thing. Be yourself. I don't know what the 2020s will be. You know, I don't know if we'll be able to look 30 years from now, look back and say, oh, that must have been the 20, you know, 2020s. I don't know. It seems like it's so diverse. Nowadays, the idea that you can be a part of the kingdom of God, you can be safe, you can, you can be franchise instead of disenfranchise is repulsive to people. They don't want to be a part of it. I want to be me. I want to be myself. And, and so that has taken a, a, it's a harder to be a discipler. We have a, a problem now. You know, I say discipleship is saying, you know, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. I had a long discussion with Preston Overholzer off and on over the years as he went to Niger. The question was, you know, should, should we just preach the gospel and then they can read the Bible and they can figure out how to be Christians? I said, no. No. They are, you are there to show them what Christianity looks like. You are there to show them you know, how, to, how to have a marriage. You know, they have polygamy there. They, you're there to show them how to dress. And you're to show them how to... Actually, they probably dress better there in Niger than they do in, in America by, by measure. But you're there to show them how to do church and to live life. That is what... You're called to do. And then when the church gathers together, now it is a unified vision of that. Does that make sense? Not just Preston and Rodney and Carlin, but now it's, it's you know, 10 other people all doing that also. And now people say, oh, Jesus taught that because I know what he taught because I can see it in his church, the body of Christ. You following that? So, As I put that into, into context there, one of the things I'd like to say is in, if you go to Ephesians 2, if you're there already in Ephesians, just turn over a page, Ephesians 2, and 19 through 20. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens 
with the saints, with the saints, and of the household of God. So that's the, now they're franchised. You were disfranchised. Now you're franchised. Now you are with the people of God. Are built upon the foundation of apostles, prophets, you know, built it together for the habitation of God through the Spirit. So the whole idea that you're no longer alone. You work, you now have people to work with and be with. You know, we just had a family just recently visit, and they seem to be showing signs of moving in, possibly. But they are, their oldest daughter, I believe, is 13 years old. And they have, she's been wearing a head covering for years, and, and they've developed some very conservative Anabaptist theologies. And they just thought they could just keep going. Well, it turns out, if you try to raise your children, you know, dress them modestly. And, and, and in fact, they've kind of taken the next step. They even have their little girls covered. And they're, you know, they're, all the people in church have, you know, television and, you know, whatever. And they're realizing, whoa, wait a minute. I cannot raise my children in this setting and expect anything to come of it. And so kind of grudgingly, he has a nice situation there. Nice job. His family's close. He's got a, he's got a you know, farm and, and selling all that and moving, you know, four hours away looks pretty big. But the point is that we cannot bring our children only out of we must bring them into not just out of but into the kingdom of god you know these children the way he was trying to raise them was we're not going to be a part of the world but he was what but daddy everybody's doing this well no no there's a people 300 you know three hours away they do it differently well that's not my friend that's not where i live the children need to be brought into the kingdom of god they need to be brought into a place the word of God is practiced and they can say, yes, that's, that works. I can live with that. You know, when I think I've maybe told this here before, but I know when, you know, we were, came out of the German Baptist and had all these standards and I wanted something much better for my children. I told my children and I gave, I gave five names and their families. And I said, you know, if you think that that brother and their family would listen to that music or wear those pants, or wear that covering in that way, or listen to that music, if, if you feel like they would do that, well, then you can. But if it looks like something that they wouldn't do, then that's just not going to be something we're going to do in our household. We're, gonna, we're united as a church. And I, and, and I use that unity. Now, we had, like I say, we had church split after that, so about half the church was one and half the church was the other. But the point I'm making is that I could use that unity as a discipleship for my, for my children. And that scripture there is, remember those who rule over you have spoken the word of God to you whose faith follow, considering the outcome of the conduct. So who in your congregation is going in a good direction? Who in your congregation has kept their family together and is walking forward in the Lord as a good testimony in the neighborhood? Who, is the, who are those people? Those, we need to follow their faith because there's an outcome to that. He makes that point. One of the other aspects of that is there should be no generation gap. I think this church would, would really not like to have a generation gap. But I can tell you, if you don't have unity, you will have a generation gap. That is just the way it will work. You will have, uh, you know, Chris, our other elder there at Gospel Light, he was very concerned the other day. He said, you know, we used to not wear blue jeans to Wednesday night meetings. And he started to notice that there was some young people wearing blue jeans. He said, I'm concerned that we're going to have a generation gap because it's not the older people wearing blue jeans, it's just the younger people. And so we're going to have 
the conservative older people and they're dowdy and old-fashioned and don't really get it. And the young people are going to be dressing differently. And so disunity, a generation gap comes from disunity or disunity come, creates a, a generation gap. And we don't like generation gaps. We like our church to be one big family. I put my water. There we go. I wrote down a definition of church as a discipler. At brothers' meetings, in our gatherings, in the life we live in the sight of one another, we tell each other who we are, both to remind ourselves and to nurture the young in experience into the Christian identity, lifestyle, and practice. So the church is a discipler as it unifies together to show the young and the inexperienced what it looks like to be a Christian and walk in the Christian life. You know, you think about this. How many of you believe that we do a better job of teaching how to have a happy marriage than they do in the Protestant church in town? Are we doing a better job? I see no hands. I really don't think we are. It's not our better teaching that has almost no divorces in our setting. It is not better teaching. It is just simply that discipleship is working. We just don't allow it. It's just if you get a divorce, you're out. If you want to be a part of us, you don't get a divorce. You work through your problems. It is not better teaching. It is discipleship. It is, I'm using the word discipleship as in a unified standing together to show one another what it looks like to be Christians. That's what I'm trying to say here. Discipleship is just simply a unified stand together that says this is how marriage works. It doesn't break up. And guess what? It isn't better teaching. It is just that very thing. You know, I think about in the, uh, you know, in, in Haiti, I used to work there quite a bit. And it seemed like we could almost, I mean, it's terrible to even say this, but it seemed like most of the time or many times you could not trust the native Haitians with money. But if you wanted money to go where it's supposed to go, you gave it to a Mennonite. Oh, Mennonites must be better people than Haitians. No, that's not the case. If they steal money, there is a huge loss because their brotherhood, their connection with the brotherhood is lost when they, is a big, huge loss when they steal money. And so brotherhood matters, even for staying honest. We don't like to say that. Oh, no, I wouldn't steal. I've got the Spirit of God in me. I'm born again. You know, all that stuff. It's true. But the church is here for a purpose. Remember, what is a church for? I asked that question in 2004. These are some of the things I learned as I wrestled with that question. What is a church for? The church is our discipler. Makes sense. I think I can skip a little bit here. I think I made my point. The next thing I would like to point out here is the question of unity, brotherhood, and fellowship and closeness. Unity, brotherhood, fellowship, closeness. Can we have one without the other? That's the question. Can we just all be one big happy family, but we don't need to work hard to have unity? Is that possible? Back in the 1980s, there was a bunch of, of gang violence 
in one of the big cities. And I don't remember whether it was Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, one of the big cities. And there was a lot of gang violence. And some sociologist had a theory. So he went to the, to the school boards in the area and said, I would like you to try something out. I've got a theory and I think it'll work. There, there's gang violence even in the schools. People, you know, smuggle a knife in. They stab each other because, you know, that one belonged to one gang and that one belonged to another gang. And it's whites and blacks and Hispanics were all fighting each other. And it was terrible. He said, I've got a theory and I want to try it. So they sent a letter around to all the parents in a couple of school districts and asked a simple question. Would you allow your children to be put into a school uniform? Well, the parents were desperate. These schools were a mess. They were a mess. They said, yes, whatever it takes, just do it. So they, they I don't know how they've done it, but they've got the boys all wore the same kind of clothes and the girls all wore the same kind of clothes and everybody went to school in exactly the same clothes. There was a 98% reduction in violence in those schools overnight. It happened overnight. And well, the sociologist theory was that people, people will not attack and hurt people that look like themselves. That was the sociological theory. The idea is that unity, being unified outwardly, would bring some unity inwardly. And so the, the point of that, that whole experiment was that we could try to preach everybody to be nice and, you know, we could, you know, why don't you just love each other and I mean, maybe we shouldn't have gang symbols and whatever. But just that one simple thing elim- almost eliminated gang violence in the schools. So can we have unity or can we have disunity and good fellowship? That's the question I would like to ask right now. And you're going to figure it out right away that I believe that they go together. So this idea of unity is, is connected to connectedness. The idea that we're together. We've been called out. We have one Father. We've been saved by the same Jesus. We read the same Bible. But it's more, it's, it's, we're a body. We're together connected in some way. It's, it's, a, it's, it's spiritual connection. It's unity of the Spirit. There's a Spirit of God is in all of us, and so we're unified, and there should be a connectivity there. So, when Apostle Paul says in, in, in uh, Corinthians and Romans both, he says that he would, in one place he says this way, I will not eat meat while the world stands if it causes my brother to offend. The idea that what I do affects my brother. What I say affects my brother. How I live affects me. What I allow affects my brother. And, and that that actually matters. And I'm going to actually rearrange my life around that truth. There's a connection because I love that brother. And, and he's connected to me. And I don't want him to fall. I don't want him to go a wrong direction because of what I do. There's a connection. You get that? There's a, there's a unity of connection. Apostle Paul was called to, to, you know, he said he went to Jerusalem and they met him there at the gates apparently. And they said, hey, you know, everybody's kind of afraid you're a liberal and, and you're loose living and you're not even a Jew anymore. Got an idea. Why don't you shave your head and take a vow? And the Apostle Paul did that. Why did he do that? Because he, was, he did not want his life to be a hindrance for the gospel. Paul uh, worked hard so that he would not be chargeable, so that he wouldn't bring reproach on the gospel of Jesus Christ, so he didn't take money from people. He, he realized that his actions affected other people. We weep with those that weep. We mourn with those that mourn. Those in prison, we, we, we pray for them as though bound with them. We're connected together. What we do matters one to another. Eleven, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Apostle Paul said. 
there in fifth, uh, fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians. In, uh, you know, the early church, they got that very well. They called nothing their own. The idea was that what we have matters. What we do matters. How we react to people matters. I wrestled with this uh, oh, a number of years ago. I asked the question. We had, uh, this would have been pre-2014. We had young people that when they left the church, they would get mad. You know, they, you know first of all, they'd get be rebels. And, and they'd be you know, obviously rebels. And then when they left, they left mad. They were angry. They'd never go back in this church door ever again. And I wonder, that's not my experience. I grew up in the German Baptist, and, and people left the church all the time, and they, they didn't come to the church, and some youth got went into all kinds of sin and done terrible things. But I never knew them to leave mad. You know, they'd show up at special meetings and shake everybody's hand, and everybody was happy. And what is the difference? I wrestled with that. Why, why is our young people leaving mad? Why, you know, why can't just people just leave? Right? Why do they have to be mad about it? it was a, I wrestled with that question. I came to realize that it was because of our disunity. It, it's, you know, somebody, you know, some rub, rebellious youth thinks he's born again. And he's not dressing a lot different there. He don't listen to music any much different than somebody else's. His car might be, you know, or truck might be all jacked up. But so-and-so's got a loud truck, too. And he, he comes up with all. And so soon as soon as somebody tries to speak into that young person's life, you're picking on me. Well, why are you picking on me? You're not picking on him. There was the, the idea of, you know, where I grew up, there's, unity was, was highly uh, uh, you know, emphasized. And so there was a door. And you were in the door? Or you were out of the door? And it was very clear. And when you stepped out, you could always go back. There's always, well, and that's one thing about the German Baptists. They were very welcoming. You could always walk right back in if you wanted to. But when you were out, you were out. When you were in, you were in. It was a very clear line about what that took. There was no, you know, well, they're mistreating me. They treat so-and-so a little different than so-and-so over here. And, you know, there's this idea that somehow that that we have this big umbrella, and I know I'm not doing quite right. I know I'm way over to the edge, but why can't I be in? Oh, you're picking on me. I'm mad. And they leave. That was something that came very clear to me. Unified faith and practice is an important part of contented young people who say, hmm, I don't like this church anymore. But you know what? I'm not mad. I'm just going to go somewhere else. There's just something about that that really stood out to me as important. It's not personal. When the church is taking a stand, we're not picking on you. We're not picking on you. This is just a stand. We stand together on this. We're together. It's not a, it's not, it's not a problem. You can come to it or not. You know, it's voluntary. I was, I, that's one thing about a church. Face it. I don't like it very well, but the reality is church membership in any given congregation is voluntary. Take your pick. Somewhere in there, I realized something else. So we have good, solid church members. They're doing fine. Everything's great. But then their youth decide to go over here. Well, they start dressing strange. They start listening to the wrong music. They get involved in technology. They don't believe in the church standards on, on 
social media and whatever. And so the, the elder finds himself in this place where he has to say something. You know, Johnny, you know, squealing, squealing your tires out of the parking lot. And, and I don't know where you got those shoes. But that's not what we wear to church. You know, whatever. And so now, guess what? The elder's the bad guy for picking on Johnny. And then Johnny, there's any Johnny's in the church. I always abuse Johnny for the boy here. But well, Johnny is, is, now he's offended. He goes to his parents. His parents take sides. Now the things the church supposedly stood for, but really barely did, they didn't really agree on it. It's just the elder is trying to hold some kind of a line. And now Johnny's got his parents on his side. And now the next thing you know, the parents are following the children out. Now the sad part of that is, that they did not share the church's values. That's the, that's the reality. You know, we don't always... You know, when youth are rebellious, and sometimes they are, let's face it. We're sad about that. We don't like it. We, we wish it. Well, we have prayer meetings about it. Parents sometimes fast and pray mightily over it. Hopefully the elders and the, and the deacons are working on it. But the value... Does, when a parent follows his child or defends his child, he's saying, I don't share the church's values. Does that make sense? I, I think you should allow Johnny to just be Johnny. Instead of saying, wait a minute, Johnny stepped away from this discipleship. He stepped away from the church. He stepped away from how the church has decided to apply the biblical principles of God's word. Does that make, am I following that? So the unity is a way that we disciple our youth. And then, and then the parent says, I still stand with the church on social media. I still stand with the church on contemporary music. I still stand with the church on dress. I feel bad about Johnny. He's my son. I love him. Let's pray and bring him back into a unified place with the church of God. We had a situation a few years ago, well, quite a number of years ago now. We had somebody that made a church commitment, and it wasn't very long later, they left. Without ever consulting with the ministry, without ever really saying much at all, they just walked away. I went to that that brother, I had a little bit of a handle on him because of some, some financial issues, and I said, well, brother, brotherhood at least means sitting down and talking to the leadership about why you're going to leave. It at least means that. I, you know, we can talk all day long about what brotherhood means, what commitment means, what unity means. You know, we could even have a question about whether we should even have brotherhood commitments. We could have all that discussion, but if brotherhood commitment means anything at all, it means we'll at least have a discussion about what needs to happen. Brotherhood commitments means that when you come to brothers' meeting, you know, somebody said it this way, I am here when I have something to say and somewhere else when I don't want to listen. The other thing I want to say about unity and brotherhood is this. Now this is very, I I kind of alluded to this with the young people. But when we are unified in our faith and practice, we're standing together as a church. 
when somebody comes from outside that's, you know, kind of on the journey. They haven't got very far on the journey. You know, I remember when Wayne and Patty first got, it wasn't there, but Wayne and Patty came, she wasn't wearing a head covering, for instance. You know, this, we can have that come into our church. We can have people come into our churches that maybe still have a television or, you know, maybe they're still listening to, to the radio or, you know, whatever it is. And maybe their youth are, you know, pretty wild or whatever. If we're unified in our faith and practice, we can bring them in. We can be at peace. We're not threatened by that. We can just say, come on in. It's, it's, a, it's all right. And as long as we're, we're unified. But it's, if we're wobbly and we don't even know, you know, we've already got a family that's almost over there already. And we realize that, you know, that family is befitting this family. And, and pretty soon we start to feel threatened. We start to feel afraid. We feel like that that influence is going to have an impact on our church. Because we don't really, we're not really standing for much of anything. We're just kind of depending on kind of inertia to keep us where we're at already. The only reason why we're still wearing a head covering as big as we are is because we haven't decided not to. And, and so somebody comes in with a little tiny head covering, we're threatened by it because we've already got some that's almost going that way anyway. And so being unified in our faith and practice is actually makes it so that we can integrate people in better, not worse. It's not harder. It's actually easier because we're not afraid. If they got wild youth, that's okay. We're together with our youth. We know what we stand for. It's a lot easier. We're not as threatened. I'd like to put some balancers in here. I'm going to read some of this. Ethical, cultural, and moral boundaries, that would be like church standards, can be incubators for sin if not coupled with a true heart change and face-to-face relationship with real people under godly authority. Sometimes you can get, and those of us who came from plain settings know that you can, you can get all the outward trappings and have a wicked heart inside. And that happens with, by the way, with internet accountability. You can have the internet accountability on there, and it's all the, everything, you know, you're in, under the church standards, but you figured out a way that you can find your way around. So it can be an incubator for sin. And that's why we want to emphasize a heart born again transformation. So another balancer is we don't want to be one and wrong. One and false. We're one we can have unity of you know there's a spirit of unity which just says we got unity and we're not biblical. We're not right. You know, I was, when I was growing up, there was, there was uh, one of the things that came on early on in my life was the, uh, the dresses the sisters wore were more and more shaped. They would spend a lot of time shaping the dress to the form of the sister. And I challenged one of the elders one day. I said, why, why don't we have modest dress? And he said, well, Brother Clint, our uniform is modest. I said, well, wait a minute, it's not because I can show you it's not. And the, the point I'm making here is you know, we can have a standard that is really not the spirit of what we're trying to achieve and what the Bible teaches. And I want to say this about Acts 15. You'll find a, a, a note in there. Also, Dale Heisey has in his uh, letter that you'll all be reading or seeing tonight. The whole subject of Acts 15, you know, how does brothers' meetings work? Acts 15 is a model for that, or can be. I would just like to point out that 
Acts 15 is not a record of a bunch of bored brothers trying to come up with something to talk about at brothers' meeting. It was a real problem with real situation that needed dealt with so that we can still be together as brothers. And so we don't just make up stuff to be unified about. We actually deal with real problems, things that are actually causing division in the church. You know, we had, a, we had quite a discussion about volleyball in our congregation. You know, was, for a while it didn't matter. Nobody played volleyball, and it was kind of against the rules, and it was vague. And, but it started to be a, a point of contention. It was, it was causing division. So we talked about volleyball in our congregation. So that's, what, that's some of the things we need to talk about. All right. I want to talk about agape. Agape Christian fellowships. That's, uh, you know, I, unity is not just a inner congregation things. It is unity with the church of God at large. And so I want to talk about why do we have, why is there a consideration here at Zion, we've already decided there at Gospel Light, to become a part of the Agape Christian Fellowships, be a part of a group of churches working together. And I'd like to talk about that, explain a little bit of it, and probably ought to be talked about more at a brother's meeting, but I want to just point out some things. Uniting with a larger group of people. Several years ago, I was at a CAM meeting. I think it was in Seoul, I'm not sure. And I was, it was kind of a transitional phase of my life, and I was sitting there, and, and, and we spent a couple days together. And uh, there was maybe, I'm going to say 100 mostly brothers, in the room. And I got the notice that all the brothers were wearing button-up shirts, side pocket pants, and, you know, fairly short hair. And I, and I noticed there was two or three brothers there that were in, in front pocket jeans and three-button shirts, about three or four of them. And I thought about, I just started thinking about this. All right. I don't know. There were Beaches. There was New Order Amish. There was some New Order German Baptists. There was... Uh, nationwide, I don't know what all types of churches were there. But they were all there, and I realized that in my own heart, I'm just speaking for myself, I realized I want to be a part of whatever this is. It just, it's many, many different churches, but I realized that I wanted to be a part of whatever this is, and not a part of what those few brothers over here were. Now, I'm not making a big point about front pocket jeans. I, I, got, I, got, I wear work jeans myself. That's my point. The point I'm trying to get at is that there is an identity of faithful churches of God. There is something that you can actually, you know, you, you, go, you take a trip to California sometime and you meet a Mennonite family right away. You say, wow, there's people like me, you know, people like us. And the idea that we actually identify with faithful churches, people who believe the same things we believe doctrinally. You know, they're non-resistant people. They're separate from the world. They don't believe in divorce and remarriage. You know, a lot of those type of things. And they've stood for these things for hundreds of years. And I believe that is an important thing as we, as we consider the question of identity. Who are we? What are we? What do we stand for? Is it just, is it just Zion Christian Fellowship? Is it just gospel, Christ, gospel light Christian fellowship? Or is there something that we are a part of that's bigger than ourselves? Something that that we are a part of that encompasses other churches and other, other uh, expressions of church. That is the reason why that the Agape Christian Fellowships got started. Are we, there's got to be some way to hang together. 
hang together as churches. A couple of things that I have noticed. Elder burnout is something that most plain churches don't deal with. We do. Sabbaticals. Long, you know, elders just giving up and walking away. Why is that? Why do we, in our churches, struggle? I'm talking about the Agape churches, the, the remnant churches, and not nearly so much in the nationwide, the Eastern, the German Baptist, the, the uh, you know, the, uh, I don't know, VMA. You name the Mennonite church that you, that you know something about. I've talked to several. Never even heard of such a thing. We deal with it a lot. And a lot of it is because instead of having a unified faith and practice and brotherhood, unity, and togetherness, we put the whole burden on the elder to carry the load. And that's, I believe, one of the big problems. So, well, how does that apply to agape? It applies to agape because one of the reasons why there's, there's elder burnout is because we're carrying the load alone. If you would like a strong church here at Zion, give your elders a a place to rest with other elders and learn from and get support from and, and get balanced out from. You know, I don't, I don't like to pick on the uh, church at Athens, but I was experienced that there. One of the reasons why it ended up when I believe was false doctrine is because they were isolated. They would not take advice from anyone. There was hardly any interaction with other churches. So a couple things happened. One was that that the elder lost track of, of other churches. The other was that when, when things got out of balance, there wasn't anybody to straighten them out. It was not a good thing. I'm taking up too much time. I said it was an hour and a quarter, and it's an hour and a half, and I'm not done. I want to speak about just a couple things, and I'm going to skip some things here. Several churches of late, Arbor, Emmanuel, Missouri, church in Wyoming, uh, church up in northern uh, Iowa, have largely collapsed, I believe, by and large, because they did not have a wider base of fellowship with other churches. So... We need to find churches that we have respect for, churches that are going a good direction, churches that are doing what God has called them to do, following sound doctrine, and we need to have a sense of identity with them. That is an important part of why agape should be included. You know what? Uh, some brothers are afraid. They're afraid that somehow uh, we're going to lose our autonomy. That could happen. It could but it don't have to. We need to talk about that. So I want to read us some things, and then I'm going to skip over. I was going to talk about how to do brothers' meetings, and we'll talk about that a different time. Brothers' meetings were endeavoring to take place. I'm going to read this. We acknowledge that brothers' meetings can seem external and mundane for those struggling with such things as assurance of salvation, marriage trouble, addictions, and besetting sins, Lack of friends, financial worries, and child-raising dilemmas. We understand that we can be wrongly focused on unity and try to achieve it in areas that are not near to the heart of God, thereby creating suspicion and scrutiny of one another that takes us to that 
place of disunity and hostility of the old law. So, we should be committed to striving after unity where necessary and possible. But even more, we are committed to focusing on the weightier matters of discipleship and spiritual unity with God and one another. That said, we sadly note that a drift towards the world, confusion within our young people, fragile congregations and burned out elders have ever been an ever-growing characteristic of a remnant movement. We believe that these problems are interconnected outworkings of our highly individualistic culture, which prevents our having a unified standard of faith and practice. We as a movement have attempted to walk the higher road of the Spirit, not bringing our people under bondage to another law, dead form and legalism. But if we, as a people, are to stop our ever drifting closer to the world and bring stability to our dangerously fragile congregational cohesiveness, We must identify the gaps in our theology and understandings of the church. We do not ever want to give up the distinctives of our movement, our strong teaching on the new birth, personal holiness, emphasis on the family and headship order. But if we are to survive as a movement, we must put alongside these strengths, strong group identity, accountability to a local body, a healthy regard for the ordained leadership, and respect and yielding to the process of endeavoring. To keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I think we must say that the pulpit has not brought the unity that we need. I believe in the pulpit. I love the pulpit. But it has not brought the unity that we need. It is brothers meetings that will do that. And I'm going to read some more. Very quickly to get done quickly. I would like to talk about the shepherding principle. I was in a church one time visiting, and they were talking about how they'd made a stand against, uh, they made a stand on, on internet technology, and they want everybody to have accountability on their phones and all their, all their internet devices. And one of, the, one of the brothers fought it pretty hard. It's legalistic, it's the law, we've got the spirit, we've got the Bible, we're born again. What are you doing with all this external stuff? He fought it and fought it and fought it, but they finally said, Brothers, if we're going to be your shepherds, this is just what's going to have to happen. We're going to have to have at least, at least internet accountability on your internet devices. Well, I was visiting with these elders that was in that church, and he said the sad part of it was that very brother that fought it so hard was the one that came crying, literally crying, because he had fell into sin on his internet devices. And it was kind of ironic, but sort of predictable. Shepherding. In addressing this issue, we are assuming that we all with one heart desire to walk pleasing to God and are grateful for the gift of the church to help us in it. There's little value in coming together on any matter if the decisions made are felt to be decisions made from up above and imposed from on high. This will only bring resentment. We must allow time. We must be slow in adopting technology and other worldly things that we have so we have time to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I want to, I'm just saying this because to, one of the things we just need a spirit of slowness about what the world is offering, whether it's fashions or whether it's technology. Let's just be slow so that we can let the Spirit of God speak to us as brothers. We want to avoid the spirit of law that will see a brotherhood agreement as a minimum requirement for church membership and not as a help in our walk of holiness. The spirit of law will not be thankful, but will be resentful. 
pushing the line and passively resisting. Nor should we allow brotherhood agreements to define holiness, the limits that we can go and still please God. We call on all, especially heads of households, to examine our own selves and families before God and guide our lives by the voice of the Holy Spirit, our conscience, and the Word of God that teaches us, love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, and so on. We want to first acknowledge that no amount of shepherding, no church standards or guidelines or external rules will substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the true believer. We declare plainly that the heart must be transformed by no power less than the Spirit of God. To love light rather than darkness, to walk in that light in the secret places of the heart and habit, and to be a living testimony for Christ and His kingdom. We also believe the church has been given Holy Spirit discernment and the shepherding gifts in the body for the purpose of building up, strengthening, edifying, and helping one another along in our walks of holiness. We cannot keep pigs from acting like pigs. Nor can we, with guardrails, keep people from climbing over the edge of the ship. We hope, with God's grace, to help the weak and the vulnerable from falling and to lead the sheep in safe green pastures. We want to acknowledge the rules and standards disconnected from loving, caring, Christ-centered relationships will bring forth a spirit of law. It will ultimately bring forth division, a culture of circumventing the rules, legalism, hypocrisy, and ultimately spiritual death. We hope this process of brother meeting will draw us closer together as a fellowship, and that deeper and fuller communication about practical Christianity will be the result. There's simply no substitute for honest, heart-to-heart accountability and communication between brothers and sisters who have a fervent love one for another. And I'll end with First John. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And one final thought. The devil is not likely to get a whole lot of inroads in our churches with false doctrine and sin. But he will get his inroad into our churches by bringing disunity, bringing division into our churches. And thereby will weaken our ability to be disciplers, one of another, and a testimony that Jesus Christ was sent into the world by God the Father. So let's work towards unity and brotherhood. I, there was a lot more there I wanted to talk about in terms of practical, and I just missed, somehow it got long. Sorry about that. I know Mark has some things he wants to say. And these are important meetings, so may we have the time despite the lateness of the hour. <laughs>